The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. For a minute. After the break. Just find your contact with your seat. And feel your feet on the floor. If anything in the discussions we had before brought a smile to your face, maybe bring that to mind. Just let yourself deeply relax into your heart, your body. The warmth of the possibility of sharing joy and happiness with each other. Just for no reason at all, just because we're here and we're alive and we're aware. There's any little feeling of relaxation, contentment, little lightness. Let yourself appreciate that. It's not a mistake, it's a part of this practice. Don't have to worry about holding on to it. But you can just let yourself notice and kind of relax into it.
So, I'd like to talk a little bit about the role of concentration in the whole path and the whole practice, and particularly how wisdom and concentration work together. We talked in the very beginning of this program about how the path is kind of a spiral, you know, and we begin with preliminary right view, right understanding that this is worth cultivating and we studied the right intention and we studied ethical behavior and now we're coming to the mental cultivation factors and concentration and mindfulness and effort all work together to create the conditions for insight to arise and insight is this kind of understanding about what it is that, what were we misunderstanding that made us think that clinging and grasping and worrying about things was somehow wiser than kindness and relaxing and letting go. And so we need to see that more and more and more deeply. I think of it sometimes like, you know, if you've seen him, you're watching a magic show and the guy pulls a scarf out of a hat and you wonder, how did he do that? Or a scarf just appears out of his bare hand. How did he do that? If you watch the movie of it really slowly, you know, over and over and kind of a spacious attention, you know, you begin to notice, oh, at the moment when he's saying, look at the birdie, this hand is just starting to move a little, and, you know, slowly you can see how the magic trick is done, right? Oh, look, right there, he's pulling that out of his sleeve while he's got you looking up here, right? And you can see that more clearly as the movie slows down and as you have a more of a wide field of attention so that you can notice things against a background of calm and peace some little arising from the past of, you know, something to worry about or something to be angry about. It just really stands out and you notice it and you see, oh, now I could grab onto that, take a ride with that, or I, or I could let that go, right? And then there comes to be a moment when you aren't, you aren't even thinking that. It's just like energetically something comes up and then something else, just no, you know, it just doesn't take hold. Right? So this is wisdom that's settling in deeply into your heart and into your body and kind of into your bones that knows that this leads to suffering and this leads to less suffering. And it's because you've seen it over and over and over again and you've seen it more and more clearly and you've seen it in more and more little detail exactly, oh, that's what I'm believing right there. You know, that's that's the train that I'm getting on right there. And so concentration, I I must say, I'm not fond of the word concentration. I'm trying to tell myself samadhi somehow has a whole different association with me. I have these two pictures that I wish I could have figured out how to print out. One comes from this museum in Kansas City and it's called the Arhat, which is, and it's a guy sitting there with brows like this, furrowed brow, looking like that, you know. And there's something I, that's very respect, that I greatly respect in that. It's a, you know, serious commitment to effort. But it's also got that kind of, you know, which is my association with concentrate, you know. Somebody's cracking the whip. You got the test tomorrow. You got to concentrate, you know. But samadhi is this kind of natural unification that happens as we sort of 
find some practice, either the breath or metta or just moment-to-moment awareness, find some practice that sincerely engages us, that we can stay with and stay with and stay with long enough for the body and the mind to settle so that all that agitation that's always running around and it's just on a hair trigger of catching the next thing to jump onto and worry about, all that begins to settle down. And then everything starts to kind of pull together and be and little pleasant feelings come up and you appreciate these little pleasant feelings and then there's a feedback loop with the, the pleasure of relaxing and settling. One of my teachers described it, the progress along these lines as like to start with your mind is like an upside down U and you're trying to get the marble to stay on top, right? And it keeps rolling off and rolling off and rolling off. And the more you, you practice and settle into this, it's sort of, you know, it gets less and less and finally it's more like a regular U and it, the, the marble settles by itself and it's like the magnetism has changed so that it stays I'm mixing metaphors now but it tends to stay more in the middle and not just run off so easily right and then we've really steadied our minds and when you have this steady mind that's not asleep either because it's awake the lights are on and you're aware then you see you know you see moment to moment what's happening and when something is trying to carry you away and when something is, you know, deepening relaxation versus deepening agitation becomes much more clear. So concentration and samadhi, this kind of unified settling and wisdom work together. So one of the traditional ways of looking at the development of concentration is in terms of overcoming what's called the five hindrances. Gil has a lovely book called Unhindered. Unhindered is kind of a positive word for looking at the quality of mind that we're looking at, that's spacious. You know, it's not blocked. It's not all those defenses that we have around the heart and the mind and the rigidity in the body, all those blockages are beginning to dissolve and they're seen through and our ability to just be present and open is unhindered. So these hindrances are kind of the usual suspects in this practice of desire, sense desire, desire for sense pleasures, aversion, sleepiness, actually generally called sloth and torpor because sleep is a natural process. But sloth and torpor have a little bit of that kind of attitude in them, right? A little bit of laziness or I'm not going to or, you know, a little bit of a negative Uh, you know, (laughs) just stop the world, I want to get off kind of attitude in sloth and torpor. And restlessness and worry is this constant, like looking for something, you know, hypervigilant activity. It could be just physical in the body. It could be the mind just jumping all over the place. And then the last of the hindrances is doubt, which I think of as... I experience it as kind of the last gasp of turning to the mind and to ideas and thoughts to try to figure out what to do, you know. So I think I think of it as doubt versus faith because it's the faith to just come back to the breath, you know. But instead, I'm always thinking there must be a simpler way. There must be something about these instructions I don't understand. Let me just think about this some more. Let me just... 
I just got to figure out first what I'm going to do next week and then I can relax. And maybe I need to try a different instruction or go to Richard Shankman's classes or do something, you know. And maybe you do. I'm not saying you don't. I love Richard. But anyway, but the mind can always think of some other thing to think about and plot, you know. And then there's that actual leap of faith of saying, oh, wait, what's actually happening? You know, let me just come back to here and now and the simplicity of whatever your meditation intention was. You know, being here now is fine, connecting with the breath, just connecting with the heart. You know, just making that, letting go and coming back to that is working with that hindrance of doubting that that will work, doubting that that's enough. Let me go figure out something else, you know. So working with those five forces, you're cultivating wisdom, right? And you have to work with those five. Those five forces are what you encounter when you sit down with the intention to meditate and something besides, you know, enlightenment happens. (laughs) What happens is one of those, either a gross or a subtle form of one of those hindrances is coming in and taking your attention away. So actually, it's technically, there's a level of concentration in which those hindrances in their gross form are let go of. And that's, that's called access concentration, where you kind of have access to actually starting to see some of the stuff I started out talking about. You can see that slower movement of the mind. So, um, so in working with these hindrances, we're cultivating wisdom, right? And as we cultivate that wisdom, then we're seeing more clearly. And we're seeing the value, we're seeing the internal value of peace and happiness and that it's possible. And that it's possible in this unconditioned way because it's something that has to do with how we use our attention and how we use our intention. And it really doesn't have that much to do necessarily with what's happening. And, you know, I mean... To some extent, it, it does. If you want to c- cultivate this really deep, settled states of concentration, you do need to do a sitting practice regularly. And it helps then, if you're able to, arrange time in your life to do that. And we build nice retreat centers so that you can go and sit quietly for a while. So there's actually nothing wrong with, in fact, that's, that's the path of practice, is to try to create some conditions that are supportive for settling the mind. So there's actually nothing wrong with creating these conditions and then allowing the safety and the relative peace and quiet of those conditions to let you taste these inner states. But then you need the wisdom to understand that, oh, look, it's actually something to do with how I'm paying attention. You know, when there aren't any distractions, maybe it's easier to settle down. But that's because you're not grabbing at all these distractions. So if you can get the idea of noticing what, what is it about this calm environment that's conducive to that, and then see, let that inform other times. Okay, you know, I, I use my retreat experience all the time as a sort of touchstone when I'm all worried about something. You know, I'm always asking myself, well, what have I bought into now that, you know, that I didn't need to buy into last year when I was on retreat? You know, and so it's really nice to begin to establish this baseline 
confidence that within you it's possible. It's like discovering maybe these neural pathways it's actually possible to have peace and happiness and joy. You know, and then if you don't have a point of comparison you're always thinking, well, what we need is, you know, more ice cream and the right politics and all that stuff to happen. But that stuff is very agitating compared to things that are available from within. So, um, recognizing the hindrances as such is also a piece of wisdom that's related to what we were talking about in the four foundations of mindfulness. So it's helping us to disengage from the content of our thoughts and the idea that what we need is something out there. It's kind of abstracting, wanting away from the things that you want and just recognizing it as the power of wanting, right? Which is always the same. It's some kind of contraction in the body that you can notice. And similarly, beginning to notice aversion as such instead of the specifics of all the things that you don't like. Oh, here's the power of aversion, you know? And not buying into the message of sloth and torpor like okay, the only, the only hope here is just to shut down awareness. But noticing that, oh no, I can recognize sloth and torpor. It was a huge moment for me to recognize that that part of the mind that can recognize that kind of sleepy sloth and torpor was actually still clear. And you know, it's sort of like it separated out and part of the body that just wanted to curl up and pout could kind of do that while there was still this clear awareness that that was what was happening. And I didn't have to struggle with it. I could let it happen. And it began to feel sort of like the need to kind of go inside and go under a wave and then maybe come out a little bit refreshed, you know, without necessarily having to go to bed, leave the retreat, whatever, right? And the same with restlessness. You can feel that energy and that mental agitation and the more you're noticing this is restlessness, not buying the message that I have to jump up and get something to eat and turn on the TV and run around crazy, but, okay, this is restlessness. You know, what is skillful to work with this and stay present with it? You know, so maybe some walking meditation, maybe just opening your eyes. Sometimes I like to kind of have my making this big kind of Tai Chi gesture of Qigong gesture of collecting all the energy and holding it and letting it settle. Something you can do to just recognize this is restlessness. And the same thing with doubt, not buying into the messages that you, you know, you should definitely quit doing this and do something else or that there has to be a faster way. But just, okay, this is doubt. Let me come back to the breath. So as you're cultivating that wisdom, you're cultivating stronger concentration. So, you know, this is wisdom. Becoming wise, then, is having all the factors of the path that we've been talking about. Having them really settle in. Settle in to be in your heart, in your body. Having them... It's like we're reprogramming all of our habits. You know, the stuff that when you think you ought to do something, but instead you do something else, right? Where's that coming from? That's coming from these deep wellsprings of delusion that it really haven't been seen through yet, right? So it's talked, uh, the Buddha talks about the path of purification as coming in three stages. 
there's the stage where you don't act out anymore. That's called not transgressing. So we've talked about right speech and right action. You're not going to kill and steal and lie and rape and, you know, abuse intoxicants. You're not going to do that overtly. So, and that can take some kind of strong willpower not to do that. And then the next stage is where the thoughts and emotions and impulses to do that are still arising. And so there's a kind of internal struggle going on between the fact that you might want to do this, but you know you shouldn't. And so pacifying that phase is a lot of what this concentration practice does. It really works with soothing, you know, it, because the meditative joy and happiness that's available is really better than ice cream you know, and movies and so forth. And so as you learn that there's this wholesome substitute, you know, it's actually superior form of pleasure, then the, desi- the sense-desire realm is easier to let go of. And when you're relaxed in this way, that automatic aversion doesn't arise so much. And it's easier to bring up feelings of kindness and patience and compassion and the things you need to do to not act out of aversion. And so... Um, that phase where we're pacifying the mind and training the mind and calming the mind. But still, there's then what's called the latent, uh, latent, sometimes called defilements, latent presence of greed, hatred, and delusion. You may be in extreme circumstances, even if you're very, very concentrated, it wouldn't necessarily, you know, It's not completely uprooted. And sometimes it's just very subtle clinging to, you know, existence and clinging to your own, you know, need to feel like everything's going to be okay in the way you want it to be forever somehow. And very subtle little moves that we make to reassure ourselves that, you know, things are really the way we need and want them to be. And so then it takes very deep insight into uh, change into the nature of how things are so that we really begin to see through this habit of seeing things in terms of self-existent objects of you and me and the chair and the United States of America and things like that that you know whoa that's changing right all that's kind of changing right now (laughs) in a way that probably makes a lot of people uncomfortable so maybe you're revealing in that way a latent identification with you know the sanity of your fellow citizens <laughs> or something like that. And, you know, from, from all sides, right? Everybody's feeling like, whoa, things aren't the way I needed, I'm used to having them be. And that's fueling a lot of agitation on all sides of things these days. And so, you know, just slowly learning how to really see, okay, everything is constantly a process of conditions unfolding dynamically you know and beca- and what we notice is that the more we try to cling to all that and make it be the way we want it to be it's always suffering and at some point you see that to such a degree of depth that something in you that that impulse to cling just doesn't arise anymore so that's my understanding of what you know release and freedom is on this path is that the roots of that impulse to cling you've thoroughly seen through that is just not going to work 
and at, at, a, at a great depth where you've seen that. So this is how uh, wisdom develops. And the process is a process of then becoming more and more sensitive to this felt sense of clinging and craving and identifying and how that process works. It would be nice if we could do it only by just getting happier and happier and happier. You know, but you kind of have to see both sides. I think of it, the path is like a road and it's got bumper, you know, bumper guards somehow. And the happiness is, it's leading you forward, but the suffering is kind of the, the bumpers on the side of the road. And you keep wandering off into wanting and aversion and they hurt. And it, it scrapes and, you know, it doesn't feel good. And so you have to kind of experience that to learn how to stay on the path. So it's both seeing the pain and clinging and craving and resisting and so forth and the potential pleasure in letting go that finally deeper and deeper begins to let go. So through all this, this, this guide, this orienting north star is this sense of what's captured in the Four Noble Truths of this is suffering, this is dukkha, you know, suffering's a big word, but this is a little irritating. This is not as good as just letting go. So this is dukkha, this is not dukkha, right? That's the orientation that we more and more take toward things, which is quite different than this is what I like, this is what I don't like. You know, this is having a good plan in mind and by gosh, I'm going to do what it takes to make it happen. You know, that's that's... Okay, but it's got a little, you know, the tighter you're clinging to it, the more there's this little element of dukkha in it. So how can you detect that dukkha and work with letting it go? You know, so this... Uh, so it becomes almost... The more built in that sense becomes, that's, that's the way we make progress on the path. I love this uh, teaching that Ajahn Amaro gave here once, that it's almost like the sense of gravity. You know, you're not, when you drop something, you're not surprised that it falls because you, you get gravity, you know. You walk to the edge of a cliff, you stop because you get gravity, you know. <laughs> you don't have to stop and figure it out. <laughs> you have this, this built-in understanding of gravity. And the more you have this built-in understanding of dukkha and not dukkha, you know, you're not so surprised when the United States falls apart. And you're not so, you know, and you're not so... Uh, you don't go to, you know, despairing over it. But instead the mind turns in the direction. So when something happens that's you know, potentially causing a lot of suffering for a lot of people. The mind doesn't turn to despair, but it turns to compassion. It turns to kindness. It turns to wisdom. It turns to confidence in the steadiness of our own good intentions. You know, we still have our own good intentions. People don't take that away from you. We have compassion for people who are acting out of suffering and ignorance. Right? So the mind just turns naturally in that direction. It's really turning into alignment with all the path factors that we've been talking about. You know, as our ethics become more inwardly motivated, we don't have to stop and think, I should. You know, we're not having this internal struggle so much between I should, but eh, I don't want to. But we just do the right thing. You know, uh, 
mindfulness is just there. It's this kind of safety because you know what you see your little impulse is coming from a mile away and you know what's coming and you know what's happening. You're aware of, you're not blindsided by your own internal reactivity, but you can see it. And concentration is there with this harmless kind of joy and sweetness and well-being and peace. And one description I like of the point where the mind is collected enough to start having some of these deeper insights. It's concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, free from hindrances, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability. I particularly like pliant and malleable, you know, and bright. So it's, you have that bright presence and it goes where you want it to go. If you want to pay attention to that, it goes there. There aren't all these forces that are dragging and pushing it around, you know, grabbing your attention and running off in some other direction. So you can see. So this is the promise, anyway, of our path that that this is where we're we're headed with this. You know, when I first came in and saw this uh, display here, I was telling Liz... I just, it's not really what it means, but I just got this hit of there's the Buddha, there's mindfulness in the middle watching this flowering display of the world, right? Just watching everything bloom and fade and bloom and fade, sitting there and in back, way in the deep background, it's just this relaxed, you know, it's like that's, that's your mind of samadhi, that's your samadhi, just, ah, you know, and there's your upright mindfulness. And there's your world. That's, that's not what that means. But it's what kind of hit me when I came in the door. <laughs> so, anyway, I, I often experience. And it's good to tune in to. If you know, if you found some peace, I find it's kind of a background thing, you know. In the foreground is all this noise. But maybe in the background is some sense that, yeah, but, you know, it's all okay. You know, I kind of, you know, sometimes I tune into my body. My body is often really doesn't care about things like politics. You know, my knee has no opinion. Mm-hmm. And I, I tune into that, you know, there's a background okayness, you know. And it's other people's turn to, you know, have their way, this the way and that way. It's, I don't know, we'll see what happens. But, you know, just taking, taking what comes and staying with our own good intentions, staying on the path and knowing that that's the best we can do for ourselves and for the world. So, uh, I also really like, i read you a couple things here. Yeah, this is a, there's a couple places in the suttas where the Buddha is pointing out that although these states of mind of happiness and bliss and all this are nice, really this freedom is what we're after. This holy life doesn't have as its reward gain, offerings, and fame. Doesn't have as its reward consummation of virtue. Doesn't have as its reward consummation of concentration. Doesn't have as its reward knowledge and vision, but the unshakable deliverance of mind, the sure heart's release. This is the purpose of this holy life. It's heartwood and its end. You know, so really... We make effort, but you can, you can have some faith that really what this is heading toward is release, you know, not just more and more and more and more effort. So we make effort skillfully in order to get on the path that leads to this kind of deep wisdom where it's natural to let go. 
And then I love this final thing that uh, the Bhikkhu Bodhi book ends with. You know, he's gone through some pretty intense descriptions of the jhanas and the stages of enlightenment and all this stuff that might leave you thinking, phew, if you read that, you know, that's a long way out there. Then he finally ends in the epilogue by saying, the only requirements for reaching the final goal are two, to start and to continue. (laughs) So I think that's really a lovely way to finish this course because we've all started together and, you know, may we continue. Okay, so um, we have a breakout session. Let's get in different groups of four. Different groups of four, meet some more people. There may be an odd number group, I'm not sure. I didn't count. Okay, maybe there's one group of five. Just let it be so. Two, three. Two groups of five, maybe. I don't know. I don't care. You choose. There shouldn't need to be more than five, so it's okay. Three, three to five. Okay, so let's go around. And since we have uneven groups in number, we'll do it again where we just go around and round. Okay, so say, you, know, you can take a little longer, say, say what's on your mind, but try to leave time for everybody in your group to say something and to go around a couple of times. So the question is, what new understandings or practices have the most momentum for you right now? So what are you most inspired to carry forward and cultivate that you've learned in the course of this whole course? What, is your, what are you inspired to carry forth and cultivate? Something you've learned in the course of the year. More bells. Stephen. I don't think we had a general consensus of what we all got out of it, which is a great thing because we all get out of it what we need to get out of it. So for me, what, well, there are several things, but I have to say the awareness of present presence Mm -hmm. and the dance I have when I'm not there, how it feels awkward and it feels uneasy, but 
when I'm done with that little dance of frustration and anxiety, I'm able to pull myself more into present presence. And with that, you know, there is a certain kind of peace associated with this. Also, we've learned different axioms and metaphors and mnemonic devices through this whole thing. And I am much more comfortable now going through this class than I was in my identification with my religion and my race and my political beliefs and my government and my country. Because so much of that, as you said earlier, is imbuing with a certain craziness and a certain change that all things happen. So my identification with things other than the truth gets me more angry, detached, and unbalanced. Yeah. I could go more, but it's kind of fun. <laughs> Great, thank you. Bernie. Um, so in our group, there were several things that uh, got my attention. It was uh, great. Uh, one was, um, to keep it simple, um, a, the other thing was that uh, for, for someone to say that uh, this is a practice was versus saying, what about if I incorporate or integrate this into a way of the, as a way of life. What, how do I want to live this day today? That it was simpler, that it was easier, that it was, oh yes, I can do this. And there are all these little tools that we have been providing throughout the program. And then um, there was, what is that kind of painting? That, um, what? So, oh, oh, the, the idea was think think of I think people can hear me. You know, the metaphor was was pointillism, and my favorite about that is Jacques Surratt. Now, if you if you get up close to any Jacques Surratt, it's just dots. You get a little farther back, it starts to look like something. If you turn around and turn around and have a sandwich and then come back, it looks a little like something else. You go out of the room, come back, it might look like something else. But the point is, all of what we've been learning are points. And we integrate them with our mind state. If my mind state is, I don't know, anger? All of those dots, I'm just going to see the black ones and the red ones. I'm not going to see them all. If I'm equanimous, I'm going to see them all. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, thank you. Yeah. Mary's, yeah. Mary's idea. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. Anybody else? 
are you going to carry forward? I think two of us had this as our takeaway, um, so, but I'll just speak for myself. I've struggled always to be present in my life off the cushion. And coming off of retreat for a few days, I'll have that state, but it dissipates and I have not been able to recapture it. But during this class, more and more I find myself just without effort being mindful only for a moment, perhaps, but it's still there and it comes naturally and automatically. And I feel very excited about that and I hope to continue it and expand it. Great, thank you. More? Yeah, uh, I came late a little bit, but I learned um, about uh, how the two dimension of uh, mindfulness and concentration can work together. Um, the uh, statue behind, uh, it was a good example. One is uh, straight, alert, and uh, the background, it is relaxed, uh, I mean, Buddha statue. So both these different uh, dimension, like a plus sign. One is straight, one is vertical. Mm -hmm. So. That is the positive way of uh, looking in a middle way of approach. Mm -hmm. Then uh, attaching to more relaxed thing or more uh, alert thing, both a middle way of approach will be the right one, I feel. Because it is like uh, when we are driving, uh, you, uh, you mentioned you have to look in the both uh, side. I was coming from Mountain View and uh, there was good traffic, both sides, cars were there. So one is other side is uh, aversion, one is attraction, mm -hmm. I mean craving. So we have to be always alert not to crash into both of the mm -hmm. things. <laughs> so right. that's the uh, approach I got from this. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you both. Um, we were discussing in our, in our group about connection. I think um, one of the things that I'm going to carry with me on is precisely that, the connection that I feel when I come to this place. Not only one-on-one -on -one in the small groups as we were doing it, but in, in larger um, groups or, or setting, uh, I love that. I can come here, I can be safe, I can be myself, and when I am connecting with others, I can feel that we are all, in different ways, are coming to relax, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to have a peace of mind, mm -hmm. and that is beautiful. Um, so when I come to this place, it's, for me it's like, okay, relax, relax. And when I am doing the process, I feel myself, I can identify myself with other ways of suffering in others. And it's okay. Just relax. And of course, I think with practice, that relaxation will be, will make on me, or will give me the opportunity to see 
the picture and see the big dots <laughs> in the big creation and not only one single one. And lastly, um, I, I love when people are have all of this experience and they share their experience with us. I've been coming to this meditation center for since November. And when I get in groups, when there are two members who have been practicing for 30 years, it's like, oh, thank you. This is, I've some, I'm grateful. This is just a, a unique opportunity, and I just have to be present <laughs> and mindful. So thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? So, I, since I started the course, many of the sentences and lessons that you hear during the Dharma talks when you speak, like, okay, they, they make sense, they sound nice, but they have become part of me now. I, sometimes I have discussions with my wonderful mentor, Judy, um, my friend now. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, and I understand what it means, and it's amazing. It's like that moment, like, oh, it, oh, I know what it means. Um, one of the most precious lessons is about happiness. I'm the only one that can make myself happy, and understanding what that means have changed so much in my life. And um, the counterpart that Judy, when we were discussing about it, and she said, yeah, and you cannot make anybody else happy. It was like, whoa. <laughs> it was this burden came off my shoulders. It's like, yeah, I cannot. I'm, I, I can live with right speech, right intention. I can set the conditions, but I cannot make anybody happy. And that's priceless. That changed a lot of things in my life. And also thank you for creating the conditions for finding this wonderful friend. Um, this is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Judith. Okay, I also want, I'm very grateful of having the opportunity to be here. And one of the things that in my, in this moment of my life has uh, given me these uh, learnings here, although that I've been here only twice in this group, because I've been doing that mostly uh, through the audio dharma, and I haven't even met my, my mentor but once. So I've been doing what I can, and that's the learning for me, that, that is this community, this tradition, uh, uh, together with the Inside Center in Santa Cruz that I am part of, is 
I mean, I'm learning about not pushing in my life. That I don't need to perform, create, uh, yeah, I just push all the time. And like having this, uh, the opportunity of being in, in this program in the way that I could because of my life conditions now and still be welcome here and have the opportunity to have space to share this community and the learnings. It's just like, it's big. And because it also teach me to, to let go. Now to let go in my life and accept what I have and live better, like with more openness and yeah, yeah, with more freedom. So I'm really, really grateful to the community that has been created here and that now I'm part of, of this generosity, of this acceptance. Uh, it is incredible, so thank you. Thank you. So we are at 3.30. Um, I wanted to just say a few words about, some people often want to know what might be next, right? So. For one thing, I really want to encourage you to take, you know, the practice is next, right? <laughs> Continuing to work with all this stuff is next. And, uh, but in terms of more formal support, there are, um, you're welcome to take it again next year. Some people have taken it more than once. There is the Dharma Practice Day series, which is Fridays in a format similar to this that Gil's going to be teaching starting in the fall sometime. He's going to take up the Paramis, which is ten beautiful qualities of heart and mind that, you know, are well, some overlap with the path, but also other qualities like patience and truthfulness and things that are highlighted in that teaching. Um, so those are two ideas for how to continue. It may be that in January the seven factors of awakening course will be offered again. <laughs> that we'll have this course as a prerequisite. So, um, and Gil is offering something called Entering the Stream starting in the fall sometime that has this course as a prerequisite. So there are, some, there are several ways if you like the structure of monthly meetings uh, and a con- continuity of topics, those are some ideas. And also there's always a certain um, wish for people to continue to meet together, maybe. And I was talking to someone before about how we have not succeeded in organizing that as a top-down thing. But I would really encourage those of you who think you would like to keep meeting and support each other in some way to maybe gather after we stop here and talk to each other or to think about it and find some time to get together at the day-long retreat and it's really going to be self-organizing and self-committing there and we don't have any more space in this building so maybe in a home or something so just letting you know that that you know there's often uh, a wish to have that happen and if you really want that to happen you can make it happen so (laughs) So, uh, do you have anything to add? 
just encouragement um, to keep keep going and keep starting over. And um, thank you for sharing the time all year with yeah. each other, and and I shared with my mentors and with you, oh, mentees. Acknowledging Bruni and Kim, yes. who've been my, my cohorts all year long. Anything you want to say, Bruni? <laughs> no, just remember the basic. Um, for, anyone for anyone that would like to um, participate in other uh, classes for uh, starting a practice, there's a basic basic instruction that sometimes is, is on Thursdays and Mondays. You can look at it on the web and uh, in the newsletter, but basic instruction and there's also a, a series of introduction to mindfulness and that is going to be offered, or I don't know if it is being offered right now or it's going to start soon with um, Diana and David. Um, and there's going to be another one uh, in August. So uh, stay tuned. That's another course that I took, although it's kind of a prerequisite for this. So you probably already took it, but I took it like five times when I first started this. I went every one for two years in a row, and I'm not sorry. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Not sure. Yes, we should carpool to the day long. <laughs> Thank you. Now, parking is very tight over there, and there is, although the retreat, I'm, I'm sorry, Anna, that was a very good comment. <laughs> there's a, there's a, you can go into the IRC website and look on the left and carpooling, and our event is listed there, even though it's not listed on the regular open retreat schedule. So it is a good idea. And I wish I could be there, but I can't be there. I have another commitment. So Kim and Lori and Bruni will be carrying off that day. And I wish you all a wonderful day. And thank you so much for participating in this all year. It's just been a joy.